Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the program today, we'll be talking about current, a new exhibition at McClelland Sculpture Park and Gallery that is opening very soon, uh, officially from the 29th of July. Uh, it's exploring the visual arts practices of three multidisciplinary artists, but also the currents along the coast that connect them. Gail Marbo, Lisa Wap, and Dominic White. They're all First Nations artists, and I'm joined on the line by Gail Marbo. Gail, thank you for joining us at Triple R. And just before we continue the conversation, uh, I wanted to acknowledge for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that we may be speaking about someone who is deceased as part of this conversation. But good morning. Thank you for, for taking the time to chat. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Gail, you used to be a dancer. When did your practice shift from dance to the visual arts? Um, I think that all happened around like 2002 when I moved from New South Wales back to Queensland. Because, um, what I, well, it was the, re the reason for that was that <clears throat> I ended up having um, triplets in 2001. And then it was like, okay, I'm full-time mummy maybe I can't dance anymore, so therefore what do I do? I went like, oh, I like art. And if, I'm, if I go to do that, I'll um, learn how to get paint out of clothes because I'm also preschool teacher trained. <laughs> and then that way, mums won't be angry with me when little Johnny has to play with paint. I love that. The that fact was that... the reasoning. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a lovely insight into you as a, as, and your personality as well, though, as well as the, the, the drive to create. As you say, you may not be able to continue a dance career as a, a full-time mum to triplets, but being able to find another way to express creativity, uh, to explore culture, uh, is clearly important to you. Yes, it is. And it also connects to the stories that, you know, growing up, my dad told me, as well as listening to uncles and aunties who are just sitting around and, and them sharing stories. And, you know, what do stories do to children? It sort of ignites the imagination. And so, for me, the art is just an extension of that imagination running wild. Now, you've just mentioned your dad. Uh, that's the late Eddie, uh, Eddie Marbo, who's a, a landmark figure uh, in the, the land rights movement in Australia. Uh, also, I imagine something of a, um, both a proud heritage to, to have, but a bit of, is there a bit of a weight associated with that as well in terms of having to live up to your father's name? Well, because um, one of the... One of the times just before sort of talking about the legacy to my to my brothers um my one of my brothers said you know his, his shoes are too big you know we can't we can't get be expected to do that and I said but isn't it how you choose to wear them not and if it fits and um then I then lo and behold my dad decides to give me that moment of saying, well, you're going to be the one who's going to represent the family and continue the legacy. And so what I've done is I've actually taken that on, but I've, I've actually made it to where it's comfortable for me to, 
to do. It's not I don't extend myself to places I can't be in. And if I look at it and I sort of sort of balance out, okay, is it is it beneficial for me to step into this room to have these conversations with people or should I just sort of stand back again and watch a little bit more before I become more knowledgeable before stepping in? Because that's all what it's all about is being, being able to speak within a room and feel comfortable about the discussion you're going to have. And if you don't, don't do it. Step away and wait. That idea of being knowledgeable also feels very relevant to this current exhibition, current, uh, given that it's an opportunity not just for yourself and two other First Nations artists to present their work, but it's also an opportunity, uh, I believe, to assist with emerging curators as well and to help them gain knowledge and skill. That's right. And, you know, um, for me... Like when I looked at the, when they sort of put to me going, oh, we're going to do an exhibition and, you know, then it's going to be called Current. And I went like, okay. They literally said, you know, Current as in the works. I went like Current. For me, Current is like the calling of the wind. So when when the wind blows through the bamboo, we hear the voices of our our forebears who still guide us and protect us to to a sense of of, um, actually knowing where we come from and and how we need to look after and maintain a connection to that space. And so for me, bringing into the space bamboo, because for me, when I was growing up and the first time I ever went back to Marianne, just listening to the wind come through the bamboo was magical. So that's what I'm doing, is I'm bringing a magical moment into the space. Which is something that I love, that idea of sharing uh, both... Uh, both culture and physicality of Murray Island, where kind of uh, your home, but also then bringing in a, a sense of, uh, of of magic and evocation of of wind moving through bamboo, of uh, of the 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 water currents around the island, and the sense of of history as well. The installation that you've uh, created for Current, I understand, uh, involves sculpture and sound and scent as well. So as and also video. So a very multi sensory evocation of of place yes it is and and for me it's that whole whole sense of um letting this audience down in the southern end of australia understand and respect that in our space we have laws that guide us and also we have to accept that each area is governed by someone else as in their where are their lines? Where are their lines? How are they predicted? And for me, it's through um, the the groundings of maybe it might be just a rock that is shaped like something that is sitting in a position that you know that that is belonged to somebody else. So in my language, that means it's it comes under the Malo's law of tag moki moki teter moki moki, which means we cannot touch that is not what is not ours, and we shall not walk into a space that is not ours. In terms of sharing the exhibition space with two other artists then, talk to us about uh, in kind of acknowledging their work, acknowledging their presence and practices and their traditions as well. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Lisa's exhibition, I walked in the other day, she was hanging, hanging things and it was just, for me, I sort of saw them were like, well, this is beautiful. You know, and I, I looked at the, how she's how she's done her work and the way she's presented it. For me, is, is fantastic. And then going into Dom's um, sec- section and looking at how his play with kelp and and his understanding of of where he comes from and and water currents and because 
you know, Tasmania and all of those little southern places surrounded by water. So it's currents of water and the currents of influence through through that of of um, sailing and, you know, that movement of kelp under the water. And so, and then, then comes to mine and, and mine is, is the hard structure of bamboo, but it also evokes that whole notion of I'm, I've, I've taken you somewhere else. So it's a it's it's a mind moment of going through three different three different areas, but they also in their own way connect because it is that similarity of what it is that one person is doing compared to the next. But we're not we're not competing with each other; we're complementing each other. Mm. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with artist Gail Marbo, whose work is being shown as part of an exhibition called Current at McClelland uh, Sculpture Park and Gallery down in Lang Warren. Uh, and the exhibition is running from the 29th of July through until the 19th of November, so opening very soon. Uh, Gail, have you finished installing your work in the gallery yet, or is that still a work in progress? It's still a work in progress because of the fact that... Um the bamboo itself is—it's got to be—it's got to stand upright. So it's like we're still working out the mechanism to making sure that all happens, and it will be complete today. Am I right in thinking that, uh, as well as the work, the main work in the gallery space, you've also extended your your work outside into the sculpture park itself? Well, we were going to, but then the the day I sort of. Um, came in it was soggy and I went like well okay bamboo doesn't doesn't uh, cooperate under um, weather like that so I'm bringing it I'm going to put it into the space where I will be because I'm going to put it at the back because what I, what I want is for children children and you know young people with young minds no matter what the age is to have a go at making rhythms and making sounds through the, the way they make current of air through slapping a piece of bamboo with some thongs. Oh, fantastic. So, again, that the idea of, um, of evoking a, a range of senses, so it's not just a static visual work. It can be interacted with. It can create sound. It can create noise. So referencing back to what you were saying about the sound of the, the wind in bamboo, this will be a different kind of sound, but created by the visitors to the exhibition themselves. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I believe there are some other carved elements uh, situated and placed within the, the main sculptural work as well. Yep. Well, so, so for me, the, they're, um, so there's a, there'll be a lady, there's a lady hiding in, in the centre of my, my, my clump of bamboo who, is, who represents the god of the southeast wind, who is where, when, when she's sitting in her position, she sits and she commands and dictates that, you know, that she faces the way the wind comes to ensure that the wind always is and always will be and continue to blow strongly during that season. And so that's where different different people in different areas have have their own little idols that they, they, they place at different things to acknowledge the gods of whatever wind it may be. So for mine, it's a sagera. So I am acknowledging that wind, which is also one of my totem winds. Can the, the windows at the gallery be open so the wind can actually come into the room and blow through the bamboo? Um, I don't think so. Ah. Uh, because the, 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 um, where I am in the French room, there is no window. There's, it's a glass window that could be open, but it has a sculpture outside. But um, no, there is, 
no actually windows that we that can be opened. That feels almost a shame in some ways, given the I importance know, of window I know. to the work. <laughs> uh, then it would have been great in that case. We just have to evoke. We just have to evoke someone's imagination. Uh, which is part of the, the, the magic of art as well, what it inspires Correct. in us and our imaginations. Current is showing at McClellan Gallery and Sculpture Park, 390 McClellan Drive in Langwarren, uh, from the 29th of July, so opening in a couple of days' time, through to the 19th of November. The gallery is open Wednesdays to Sundays from 10am to 5pm, and you can find out all the relevant details at mcclelland.org.au. I've been talking with Gail one of the three artists uh, who are exhibited in current alongside Dominic White and Lisa Wap. I hope I'm pronouncing Lisa's surname correctly. You are. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I should have checked with that, that with you when I first picked up the phone. Anyway, Gail Marbo, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. And thank you for having me. Triple R. You're tuned to Smart Arts here on Triple R. My next guest has joined us in the studio. Benjamin Nickel is a playwright and performer uh, and has got not one but two plays to talk about that are coming up at 45 downstairs. Uh, Kerosene and Sirens, running from the 2nd until the 13th of August. Benjamin, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. So it's rare for independent theatre to have the chance to remount a work, let alone remount two this is rather special. It is, it is. I am incredibly excited about the chance to present both these works again. Um, both, well, they were the first two plays I ever had staged and so they're very um, important to me and um, it was always my intent that they sort of get programmed together and due to various COVID interruptions, that's not how their initial debuts happened and so it's really extraordinary that that chance has finally arrived. What is it about the the way these plays are written or thematic themes? Th- thematic themes, yes, Richard. Good, good English there. Um, mm-hmm. The themes that they're exploring or the tones of them that makes them so ideally paired together. I guess I was really interested when writing both of these in going really deep into the psychology of one person. They're both um, character studies that look at love and loneliness in young people in isolated regions of Australia. Um, both were made in kind of this, I guess, defiant act of all the uh, limited outlets there were to funding and to opportunity in the arts at the moment. So they're both incredibly stripped-back performances. They're a single performer um, speaking with no set, um, no props. And I was really interested in prioritising, I guess, the connection between an audience and a performer with spoken word Uh and sort of seeing what a world, how rich a world and detailed a character you can build just with that. Well, having seen one of the works, Sirens, at uh, Melbourne Fringe, uh, I'm deeply impressed by the, the depth of character that you were that you can create in a monologue. Uh, in some ways, I think that writing monologues must be harder than writing uh, a two-hander or a three-hander because there you've got the conflict arising from characters interacting, mm. the spark uh, of of an argument or something to to uh, flesh out the, the dramatic world you're creating. Mm. Um, but uh, instead, with Sirens, you have uh, yourself uh, <laughs> playing the role that you have written uh, and... Do you think that helped the, the the strength of the monologue, that you knew every inflection that you wanted in the piece? Um, yes and no. I think the challenge certainly became, because it's just, you know, it's just me on stage and in Kerosene it's just Isabella Gena who's the performer of that piece. So the tension becomes much more about 
the relationship with the audience and the performer rather than these other characters you'd be having dialogue with. Um, and also I think the construction of place that the piece is set in and the sort of descriptions of the landscape that surrounds those characters almost becomes a secondary character because that is all you've got to describe and we need an audience to invest in that and imagine that in order to sort of believe and inhabit the world with you. Um, I wrote Kerosene first and that one I wrote knowing Isabella would be playing that role and so that was a really valuable thing as a writer to have the actor with you kind of on tap to workshop scenes and to hear her feedback and to hear her thoughts and what she disagreed with and to have someone working simultaneously to develop that character with you. With Sirens, I knew I'd be playing the role, but I didn't want my ego to get in the way of that and I didn't want it to be a piece that would, um, you know, could only be sold because I was delivering it. I wanted its writing to be able to hold its own worth independent of the performer. So when developing it, I used Isabella again as the performer I would workshop the text with and I only stepped into performing it sort of six weeks out of the season when it was time to sort of actually start rehearsals and the writing stage was finished. So you've actually credited her as well with uh, as what a co-writer of the works, co-creative, co-creative. Sort of yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, talk to us about that relationship uh, to have that kind of um, I don't know the the knowledge that you have someone backing you up creatively, but also pushing you creatively as well. Someone who you mm. clearly trust intimately uh, in order so that you know that their advice is a good sounding board. Um, that feels like a relatively rare creative partnership uh, in in theatre, particularly for young playwrights, kind of first or second work. It's so often their work and, and very held very closely mm. to their chest. It seems like you've been very generous in, t- in terms of opening up a creative uh, collaboration. I think a lot about the relationships we sustain in the arts and one of the things that's really important to me is um, the kind of collaborative... Um, a collaborative approach to making and particularly the relationships you can sustain and build whilst making a work. Um, Isabella is someone that I studied, I went to drama school with 10 years ago and we were very, very good friends there. And since graduating, we worked together on a couple of projects and just have always really um, had a lot of, like we love each other very deeply, but we really support each other and challenge each other. And because we've known each other a while and worked across a few projects we have a great dialogue. Um, I think maybe that's something that can sometimes lack in this industry as well is a rapport developed between regular collaborators and that's something we've put a lot of effort into um, letting thrive between us. And so I am very appreciative for how supportive she's been of my work and it's a relationship I want to hold on to very dearly. Um, yeah, I feel very, very lucky to have her and to be able to work with her again and again. Yeah, you've also, I guess, got a good uh, collaborative relationship uh, with uh, Voice in My Hands, uh, VIMH, who are kind of uh, what producing and uh, remounting uh, the work. Um, the uh, And Liv Satchel, who's directing Sirens, has also uh, clearly established in her practice as an artist uh, a series of uh, very uh, kind of collaborative uh projects with a series of actors for example yes yes um i mean Liv, i think is an absolute goddess of a human being she is similar to isabella i was so surprised to find such a wonderful working relationship with isabella and to sort of have found the same thing again in Liv. feels like i've really lucked out to have these two people i can work with now on the same project both of whom i think um offer and guide and challenge me in such wonderful ways Liv came on board with sirens um 
initially because Bella, uh, there was a big clash of sort of availability with Isabella last year and so she was in Europe during our rehearsal period and so we sought out Liv to come and sort of um, help support the project and she, it was it was such a wonderful choice. I feel so lucky I've had the chance to work with Liv now and she will continue to work with us. Let's talk about the, the two plays in a little more detail. I'll start with Sirens, just because I've seen it. Sure. You mentioned kind of the importance of world building, for example. Mm. Um, that's paraphrasing. But the um, that was one of the things that, that struck me watching it, was how, um, how detailed the world of a young queer person growing up in a coastal country town felt. Uh, mm. It... it there was a, a real richness to it uh, and to the struggle of being a young queer person in a country town as well. Yeah, I mean, I was certainly... It's a piece that I was really interested in. I guess this idea we talk about in queer community a bit of, like, delayed adolescence where things catch up to you a little bit later and how I think that's amplified even more if you're physically isolated. I think we're already often physically isolated, but when you're actually in a regional area, that's exacerbated even further and I was particularly interested in looking at how I guess in the throes of first love or through the relationships of others who are exposed to more things than us that can really reveal um, some of the gaps that we may not have been aware of previously and expose us to our own vulnerabilities. Yeah that notion of um, uh, delayed adolescence really like certainly resonates for me. I think you know, uh, my 20s were the period, kind of my, my mid-20s to my early 30s were the period where yeah, I started to do all the things that I didn't get to do as a teenager because I, I was a queer yeah. kid growing up in a country town. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, what about uh, the world of kerosene? Talk to us about that. Kerosene, I was... Um, really looks at the intensity of friendships. Um, I th- that was... Started writing that one during the first lockdown we had in 2020 and I remember feeling particularly helpless during that time and really looking at this having a strange relationship to change where in some ways I was clinging to this idea of things remaining the same but also acknowledging that to change and sort of stewing on that idea I created this character who really is resistant to change in every way she has this very intense Millie the central character has this very obsessive friendship with Annie and as both of them grow up and things naturally get in the way and relationships evolve, Millie clings to that with this real sort of um, ferocious intensity and sort of wills herself to not see the world or the relationship changing around her, kind of to her own detriment. I'm speaking with Benjamin Nicholl, who is the uh, playwright uh, of Kerosene and Sirens, which are being staged or remounted, I should say, as a double bill at 45 downstairs from the 3rd until the 13th of August. Um, Benjamin, let's go back uh, to before you wrote these plays, before you were at the VCA. You've always been interested in writing, even as a kid. Did you write to George Lucas? I did. I did do that, yeah. At about seven years old, I um, had my dad transcribe a letter to me where I pitched to George Lucas a a Star Wars crossover with um, a series of picture books that I was writing as a kid called Charlotte and Michael, and I thought Charlotte and Michael would mould well with the Star Wars characters. And so I asked him to cast me and Nicole Kidman as um, Charlotte and Michael amongst the rest of the Star Wars sort of regular figures. So obviously that particular dream didn't come about, but you (laughs) clearly had a passion for storytelling and character even then. When did that start to to germinate into a professional writing career? 
Um, I, as soon as I finished high school, I got into the VCA and studied acting. So I did their three-year undergraduate course, which was really, I uh, played a really formative role, I guess, in opening my mind and shaping the sort of artist I wanted to be. Um, but I was aware very quickly that being just a performer didn't quite uh, scratch all the itches that I had creatively. Um, and so pretty soon after that, I went back to the VCA and did my master's degree in playwriting. In the few years in between those two degrees, I was doing quite a lot of theatre making and sort of fiddling around with bits of writing and working out if it wanted to be text particularly I worked in or if it was going to be a more physical realm of theatre that I wanted to make. And it was really going back to study that allowed me to develop um, particularly a practice with language um, and gave me the discipline to really follow through and complete lots of the projects I was starting and then leaving unfinished in drawers. So even if you're finishing them at three o'clock in the morning, I understand you're a bit of a kind of, I will sit down and hammer out a draft overnight. That is true. Three o'clock would be an early night for me, actually, if I'm working overnight. Um, it's often I will start at maybe 10 or 11 at night and work through till seven, eight, nine in the morning. But I can work very quickly if I do that. What is it about that particular method of working that is so helpful for you? Is, it, is there something about the just blurting out a first draft in such a concentrated way? I think so. It's I'm someone who works... Uh, I like doing things in extremes, I suppose. I don't have a regular writing practice where I sit down and write a bit every day. I'm, I'm quite jealous of writers that are able to do that. For me, it's kind of a it's a bubbling up on the inside and then it explodes in one burst and then it's out and then I need to take a break and think. Often I feel like I need to think until something is ready to just burst completely out of me and it seems... I'm a night owl anyway, but it just seems at night time there are less distractions, there are less things in the way it's easier for me to get out of my own way and just sort of often I, it feels a bit like I enter a fugue state. It hits this point where I just turn my brain off and things pour out, um, which is very satisfying actually. The notion of a play bursting out of you in the middle of the night kind of has, uh, I don't know, makes you think of certain uh, horror movies. But uh, it also, yeah, that, that, as you say, that fugue state, when you are so immersed in the writing that you, for hours, the outside world just disappears, you disappear, and the writing mm. is, is uh, what becomes the, is what comes out of that process. But given that you work that way, to, what about rewriting? Given you've got the chance to, to restage Kerosene and Sirens at 45 downstairs, have you gone back and re, reworked the text? Have you tinkered? Have you rewritten? Or were they already complete enough in their own way? There's been, I guess, minor rewrites for this season for both plays. Um, I guess that's the beauty of um, working with the same team. You can just chop and change going, oh, this worked last time and now it feels different, so let's edit it a bit, or the actor's changed or their their experience has changed, so there's an impulse that there's a slight phrase that doesn't sit as well anymore. So there's been things in a minor sense that have altered. Uh, I suppose... In regards to rewrites, normally I'll have a first draft pour out of me overnight and then rewriting for me is a very collaborative thing and that's a, something that often takes place in the daylight hours and is um, something I will do with the people around me based on their feedback, often a bit more in real time. It's less of me reclu becoming a recluse and a little sort of demon in the night <laughs> just trying to work as quickly, as intensely as possible. Kerosene and Sirens uh, are being staged... Uh, at 
45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne, from the 2nd until the 13th of August. And you can find out more details at 45downstairs.com. That's the words 45downstairs.com, not the numerals. 45downstairs.com to uh, find out all the details about and book for, should you be so intrigued, Kerosene and Sirens by my guest Benjamin Nickel. Benjamin, obviously at the moment you are focused on these two works being remounted. What's next for you in terms of playwriting? Um, so playwriting I'm working on, these two are the first I've sort of got in this idea for this whole anthology series of solo works that look at love in loneliness across Australia. Um, the next two I'm writing are called Milk and Blood. One looks at a mother whose son is in prison and she makes the decision to stop visiting him. And one is um, Blood is about a gay man who was a leather daddy in the kink community and um, is, has a real aversion to caregiving and has to learn to be submissive in order to receive care due to a virus he obtains. Um, I'm sort of slowly developing them and the development of them will be a bit informed by how this double bill goes. Um, seeing how people receive, seeing two works together as one night of theatre, I think will be really pivotal in shaping how I want to craft the rest of this series and how they'll be staged and programmed together. I look forward to seeing what the outcome of that process is like. Benjamin Nickel, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. And as we said, uh, you can catch Benjamin's plays Kerosene and Sirens uh, at 45 downstairs from the 3rd until the 13th of August. Thank you so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, a couple of weeks ago on the program, I spoke with Richard Hull from the Flying Fruit Fly Circus and we talked about the impact of Swinburne University deciding to pause the 2024 intake for the Bachelor of Circus Arts programs at NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts. That decision by Swinburne has uh, yet to be resolved and is certainly causing stress for circus students around the country who had been planning to attend NICA, uh, hopefully attend, uh, certainly audition, uh, but study at NICA next year in the Bachelor of Circus Arts. Some of the people affected are already at NICA studying the Certificate Four in Circus Arts. And two of those students join me in the studio now. Uh, Sophia Laidlaw and Naruha Ota are here to talk about the impact on them and their fellow cohort. So welcome to you both. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Sophia, we'll start with you. Um, obviously the news that uh, Swinburne have paused the intake next year for the Bachelor of Circus Arts has come as a huge shock. Tell us about the impact on you, the, the people who are doing the Certificate Four. that's a one-year circus arts course at NICA, with the plan then of then moving on into the Bachelor program next year. So to hear that the Bachelor program has been paused or frozen uh, must have been a huge shock. Yeah, it really was. Everyone was really surprised and taken aback by it. Um, the majority of our cohort of the Cert 4 students had definitely planned on auditioning to get into the Bachelor next year. Um, and I think especially because the Cert 4 was kind of advertised as a stepping stone or a pathway to the Bachelor. Um, so it's a one-year course that gives us kind of the foundation of circus arts, introduces us to the industry and equips us with the skills needed to audition 
nomination for the Bachelor of Circus Arts. So certainly we were really shocked and taken aback and quite upset at the news um, just because we feel like we have nowhere to go now and that all the training and efforts and sacrifices we've made so far have been for naught if we don't have training to continue with. And also that what you were, you were promised a, a pathway into the, uh, from this one-year course into the three-year course, and that pathway has now been removed. That's correct. I mean, um, so we'd still, of course, have to audition, um, but uh, Nika likes to describe the Cert 4 program as a year-long audition into the Bachelor program. Um, so, of course, we still have to do a formal audition, uh, but definitely... Uh, the skills we learn and the way that the course is taught is very much geared towards helping us um, helping us have the have the skills and the knowledge to know what NICA is looking for and also what the circus industry is looking for. Um, so definitely it's, uh, yeah, horrible that we suddenly were told, oh, okay, we can't go along that path that we've been told is a pathway anymore. Which... Uh, Naruha, it must have come as a particular shock for you. You've moved to Melbourne from Japan yes. to, to study this course. Um, if you could tell us what was it that attracted you to NICA in the first place? Why was this course the one that you were set on doing? The main reason is they have bachelor course. But uh, when I was just 18... Uh, I was already 18 years old when I decided to, to, to be a circus performer. It's too late, and so and I didn't have uh, circus knowledge, circus skills, and circus experience. So I need to get more like, opportunity for circus. So. That's why I choose Nike to go to Saka school. And Australia is close to Japan, and time difference is just two hours. And the Melbourne is good, uh, friend friendly for students. And so my family is not too uh, worried about for me too much. So that's why. I come Australia, I come Nika, I choose. And um, Sophia, when uh, Naruha says that she, uh, 18 is quite late to start studying circus, that I, I would imagine is one of the things that is so important about the Cert 4 in circus arts. It's bringing people up to speed in a concentrated one year program. Yeah, I mean, the people in the Cert 4, we come from a variety of different backgrounds. We're, we're aged from 17 all the way up to mid-30s. Um, so quite a few of us do have circus experience, but other people might have um, not so much circus experience, but, for instance, I come from a gymnastics background. Others come just from a juggling background or parkour or dance. And, yeah, so the Cert 4, it can either act as a way to help circus artists, you know, elevate their skills if they've already been doing circus for a while or can help those who are relatively new for circus or do have a different background, definitely help them, bring them up to speed and we're introduced to a wide variety of disciplines and, yeah, circus specialties for sure. Yeah. So obviously, uh, Naruha, it must have been a real shock for you but also for your family who have helped you come to Australia to study this course. Can you t tell us what the the impact of this news 
the Swinburne's announcement has been for you? In fact, for... Um, <laughs> um, so, I... Can I talk about my, like, history? Yes. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, I need English test f to come to take audition for Ni to NICA. So I took IELTS, is National English Test, and two time. That's many take cost. And also I took a course that English course in Swimban, and uh, they are, they require many time, many cost, and my family has to help me. And I have just one mother and two siblings, my uh, older sister, younger brother, and my mother take me by herself, just one person. So I want to. When uh, the big cost is very heavy for my mom. Um, <laughs> and also my friend, uh, they... Um. So I guess it must be hard because you have sacrificed so much and your mum has sacrificed so much to help you to get here to yeah. then hear that Swinburne can't fulfil their promise to you to... Um, because Naruha actually, um, Swinburne gave her an offer to do not only the Cert for but also the Bachelor of Circus Arts. So, mm -hmm. and she was granted a four-year uh, four-year visa by the government. Um, that's that was conditional on her passing the Bachelor audition. But the fact that now Swinburne has gone back and said, okay, well, we won't be accepting new people into the Bachelor for 2024. Um, that's broken that promise and now yeah. Naruha's sacrifices and her family's sacrifices have been in vain almost and she's left stranded now. So, I, yeah. Thank you, Sophia. <laughs> and it puts you in a very difficult position and I imagine it puts uh, many of the other uh, members of your student cohort in a very difficult decision as well because they now have to uh, look at where to study next and there's not that many could have good circus schools in the world, uh, which means that students may be looking at having to move to Canada, for example, to, yeah. to finish their studies, which yeah. uh, is going to be, again, a huge cost and a huge blow. Exactly. Um, so NICA is the only circus school for adults in Australia that offers an elite, elite level training and also um, and the Bachelor of Circus Arts program. Um, so Swinburne was at the sole RTO um, training provider of this course. And so we're definitely going to have to look at overseas options, um, such as in Canada um, or in the UK or US. Uh, and of course, you're correct, that's, that's expensive. We'd have to get a visa. Um, and that's, that's just a huge cost and burden that not all of us are going to be able to, to manage. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, hearing people my year will go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I can't do circus now because I don't have a local option available. So it's, and like, I know for myself, I don't, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to afford that. And also as, as Naruha well knows, like, it's just such a, a big cost, both like emotionally and financially to, you know, completely uproot yourself and everything you've known to go to a, a new country. So it's just, uh, it's, I mean, 
like, for instance, a dance or drama school in Australia, if one of those closed down, that is absolutely horrible, but there are other options. Um, whereas in circus industry, for adults, there are no other options. There's, there's nothing. So has there been any word from, uh, from Swinburne as to uh, what their plans are for the future of NICA and any indication that they will be swayed in their decision? Look, it's, it's quite frustrating. Um, Swinburne has not indicated what they mean when they say paused enrolments. Um, it, to me, sounds like they are planning on uh, filtering, filtering out the... Well, not filtering, but uh, phasing out the bachelor program. So um, they are uh, taking Cert 4 enrolments for next year, um, but no more bachelor. And it is my understanding that I think it would be by 2026 um, when the, the last cohort the, that are currently in first year have finished, have finished the bachelor that NICA is perhaps no more. Um, I, that has not been confirmed by Swinburne. That's just uh, my understanding of it. So it's, I mean, Swinburne has has said that, oh, NICA doesn't align with their strategic priorities anymore. Um, that's that's what we've heard. Uh, again, we're not entirely sure what they mean by that. Uh, I think they've indicated, oh, we're a university of technology and innovation, but I would say what's more innovative than, than circus? So Australian circus is amongst the most innovative and acclaimed in the world. Yeah. Uh, so it, it does seem very, very odd. Now, Swinburne, uh, I approached Swinburne for a comment a couple of weeks ago. They put mm -hmm. out a, a very bland comment. Yeah. Um, I will continue to pursue them and uh, to, to try to find out what is going on. And perhaps the federal government and the state government will intervene and say, NICA is too important for us to lose. Uh, and another tertiary institution may take over running that course. It could fit with Melbourne Uni and the VCA. It could fit with WAPA, for yeah. example, as well. Um, but a question for, for both of you um, what would you say to the uh, to the the heads of Swinburne, the the leaders of Swinburne, if they're listening now? What is your message for them? I would ask them to please consider reinstating uh, the intake uh, for 20, uh, 2024 uh, for the Bachelor of Circus Arts program to at least. Uh, give uh, NICA and the federal governments a year to be able to perhaps, like you said, align with another training provider to allow the long-term sustainability of NICA. I do think they've left us completely in the dark here and I really um, hope if they're listening to this that they would reconsider um, and get us some more time. Um, I think yeah, they've been quite short-sighted in the impact that their decision has had, not just on uh, individual students like ourselves, but also the greater circus industry as a whole. Like um, NICA is an arts eight organisation. So the federal government has invested a significant amount of money, taxpayers' money, um, into it. And they have said they will continue to do so. And it's it's not just the students that are currently at NICA. It's NICA's support for alumni. It's NICA's short courses. It's it's NICA is the hub of, of circus in Australia. Um, so I hope that Swinburne can see the value in, you know, uh, playing their part in helping contribute to the long-term sustainability of NICA. Um, for me, I really feel uh, betrayed. Betrayed? Betrayed by Swinburne. And I already sent my voice to Swinburne, but they didn't respond any response for me. Uh, so fast, they sh I want to them 
to read my letter and respond something and uh, um, I most I feel I want I really want to them to uh, give me a chance to bash your cause that's Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Vice-Chancellor and President of Swinburne is Professor Pascal Cuesta. Um, and uh, if you go onto the Swinburne website, swinburne.edu.au, you can s find the details of Swinburne's executive team, leadership and government structure and more. Uh, if you are concerned about the future of circus studies in Australia, I would strongly recommend sending a polite but uh, concerned uh, letter to Swinburne's Vice-Chancellor uh, and also the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, uh, Professor Karen Hopgood, Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Chief Academic Officer, Professor Simon Ridings, uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Education Experience and Employability, uh, Professor Pip Patterson, uh, and also their Chief Operating Officer, Nancy Collins, and the Vice President of Innovation and Enterprise. We spoke about the importance of innovation in circus, Dr. Werner, uh, Werner Vandermeer. I've probably mispronounced his name. Werner, I'm sorry. But yes, as I said, uh, if you are concerned, uh, then please do write to the executive team at Swinburne. NICA is such an important cultural institution in this country. It trains remarkable artists, uh, and it would be a huge blow for... Australian creativity as a whole were it to close. So, uh, Sophia and Naruha, thank you for coming in. Uh, thank you for expressing your concern about what is going on, and please do keep us in the loop if there's anything we hear, myself especially at Triple R, can do to help. Thank you so thank much, you. Richard. We appreciate your help. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 